if you were to say 80% of problems in teams come from this 20% of issues, what would that 20% be? The thing that comes to mind almost immediately is the fact that we're all part of teams. What separates a team from a group, right? Mm. What separates a team from just a group of people? Most things don't matter, but the few that matter, matter a lot. Welcome to 8020 Productivity, the show dedicated to helping you do more by doing less so that you can have more time and energy to enjoy life to the fullest. Now here's your host, author, speaker, and productivity nerd, Anthony Sani. My personal interest, obsession, if you will, is with personal productivity and effectiveness. But in this increasingly interconnected world we all live in, where problems are becoming more complex, we need more than highly effective individuals. We need effective teams. My guest on the show today is Brad King, an organizational change consultant who specializes in team evolution, change management, and execution strategies. He has been trusted by companies ranging from education to the energy sector to facilitate transformations in how work is done among specialized teams and how goals and strategies translate to concrete action that drive business growth. I invited Brad on to bring the team dimension to productivity and to pick his buzzing brain on trending topics like remote work, as well as talk about some approaches to work going forward. Listen through to the end where Brad shares his 20% that has made the biggest difference, as well as an inspiring thought on personal productivity. All this and more. So let's get right into the interview. Welcome to 8020 Productivity, the podcast that's dedicated to helping you do more by doing less, by helping you focus on your vital few, the vital few things that make the biggest difference in our lives and work. On the show today, I am so happy to have with me Bradley King, or Brad King as I know him. Brad it has been working in the productivity space for many years. He's a business consultant and he has worked some of the biggest companies out here in Canada and Calgary. And I'm just so happy to have him on the show. Welcome, Brad. Thanks, buddy. Good to be here. Yeah, good to see you again. You and I met uh, a few years ago when you were working on that process improvement project with a big tertiary uh, institution out here. Big post-secondary, yeah. Yeah, big post-secondary. And uh, we got talking over, as productivity nerds tend to do, over zero inbox. I remember you were showing me you are. Yeah. yeah. And I remember thinking, jeez, this guy. Who does that? Zero inbox. Is that even possible? But obviously it is because you had it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a, a bit of an illness. That's for sure. That from time to time. I know it's uh, and one of the reasons why I was I was really excited to, to have you come on the show and is because you and I, whenever we talk about productivity, we tend to talk about a lot of um, really interesting topics and subjects. And I thought, hey, this conversation would be great for people on the show to listen to, especially because my my big thing is personal productivity, which I know you're really into as well. But some of the work you have done has focused on team productivity. Sure. So I've been following your career for a while, and it's interesting to see how you have become the go-to person in this space for team productivity in many areas. So tell us a little bit more about how you got into that. I guess about several years ago now, it just became clear to me that organizations were becoming much more reliant on teams to get things done. And we see several different operating models that have come into existence over the past 
10 years or so. But the one that has really stuck, I think, is this persistence or this persistent reliance on teams and teamwork to get things done, right? So you're seeing a lot of team-based organizational models. Sometimes they're called network-based organizational models where people are able to uh, come together and to form up really quickly to solve a major business problem or a challenge. And then depending on how the organization works, they might disband just as quickly or they might stick mm. together. But the the landscape of the organization is just much more uh, fluid and dynamic. And a big reason for that is because of like the primacy of, of teams nowadays. And that's why do you think teams are more important now than they used to be? Are we dealing with a unique situation now where teams are more relevant? I don't necessarily think they're more relevant. There is just a, a, an increasing reliance on very specialized expertise and very deep skill sets. Mm. And typically when someone's skill set is very deep, say they're, they're an expert in a particular kind of engineering, for example, typically when their skill set is deep, it, it's not broad, right? And so they need to rely on other people to get other parts of a project done. And so this reliance and interdependence on other people and other processes and even on specific kinds of technologies, it stitches together this web, if you will, of an organizational structure where it's defined by these types of dependencies. And so people need to focus on or, or, or try to get better at working uh, within these types of structures and leveraging these types of structures to get stuff done. So I think it's always been the case that people have been or that organizations have been relying on teams. I think it's even more so now just because everything is so connected. Everything is so interdependent. I can't do yes. something unless Anthony and his team does something first. So. You make a variance for some people, they might say, oh, it's that's so obvious, but I wonder, is it though? Is it? Because I look at some organizations and I'm sure you've worked in some of these organizations where they, they talk about teams a lot, but then how much have they really enabled those teams? How much have sure. they, it's one thing to embrace something logically and say, yeah, that makes sense. We need teams. But then how do those teams function? I guess we'll get into that as we get on in, in the conversation here, but that's a very that's an interesting perspective because when I, like I said, I think more about personal productivity. So that would be the, the deep individual, the person who's really good at what they do. But then these people now need depend, they depend on other people as well. What are some of the challenges you've seen with that working in teams with these people who are really good at one thing, for example? Yeah. And things I, I don't necessarily, yeah, I, I don't want to make an, an extreme argument here to say that most people in organizations are only good at one thing or something like that. But what um, I guess the biggest problem that we see is a, a legacy or a throwback to just kind of industrial modes of production and divisions of labor, where you have organizations that are organized generally in terms of kind of functional hierarchies and functional silos. And what we're seeing and what we've seen for, I don't know, at least 20 years, as long as you and I have been in, in the working world, is that you know, typically when you're trying to deliver a product or a service, you need to go cross-function. You need to go cross the silos, not deep within the silos. Most organizations are designed, I think, to, to promote this kind of, or to enable this kind of functional excellence. They're not necessarily designed to support this kind of cross-functional collaboration and communication that has to happen in order to get things done. Getting back to, to your question earlier, I think that what's really important to, to underscore here is just that most most people, and this is just my own view, most people have trouble collaborating 
in teams with people who are outside of their function, who are outside of their quote unquote tribe. If, if yeah. And that's not necessarily because they're, they have some sort of personal personality issue or something like that. They, they have trouble collaborating because they're, the structure that they work within is not set up to, prom, to promote collaboration. It's not set up right. to enable collaboration. That's right. why they have trouble. I always right. tell my, my uh, clients, the complaint that you hear almost all the time with every single project you're on is, we need to break down silos, information and functional silos. We need to start breaking these things down. And this has been like the mantra of most consultants and gurus for forever. But then there's a question that, that, that arises from this. Why are people behaving or why are people acting uh, or performing, if you will, as if they are in silos? And the answer I think is pretty obvious that they behave this way because you put them in a silo, right? Mm. If you want people to behave like they're in a silo, we'll put them in a silo. If you want, if you want a certain type of behavior, you can structure the environment to get that type of behavior. And most organizations have not designed themselves to promote quick cross-functional team-based collaboration. I think I'll, I'll break down one after the other. So you started by talking about the industrial mindset, if you will, to paraphrase. And for those listening, you probably know what that means already, but just in case you, you didn't know or you forgot, think like motor auto manufacturing, right? Where it's, this is where the car gets, this is where the gasket gets put on. This is where the, this gets done. This is where the car gets spray painted. This is where, so it's more, you stick to your job and the assembly line moves the part through and at the end spits out of a car, essentially. Whereas what it sounds like you're describing here, Brad, is that for a lot of the modern problems and for what companies want to do these days, they need, it's almost as if they need those bits to cross. They need them to talk to each other more. They need them to interact more and to have input more. And that's really not the industrial way. It's a different way of, of looking at work. And it's been going on for, like you said, over about two decades. When we think about kind of like I like to think of it in terms of kind of the industrialization of knowledge work. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're building a car, like a Model T, right? Back in the early 1900s. And yeah, you are, you have a specific position in, in the assembly line and you do one sp specific and specialized thing. Like you said, you put bumpers on or you load the engine onto the chassis and that's all you do. The characteristics of knowledge, quote unquote, knowledge work, I think are fundamentally different because you're not really making car bumpers. You're not really assembling a car. You're producing a knowledge product. And that's much more, that's much more, that's a much more uncertain and underdetermined problem. And what I mean by that is there's really only one way to, to build a car on an assembly line. There are a million different ways to build a piece of software, a million different choices that can go. And that's what I mean when I say underdetermined, it can go in one way or the other way, in a million different ways. And so really it's all about people. It's reliant much more on people's ability to communicate and to, and to collaborate effectively with each other. Whereas you didn't, you don't, you didn't necessarily need that in, in, in an industrial factory. Why do you think knowledge work is becoming more relevant? Why are some of these, like I know from past conversations with you, some of these really established, really mature companies now who have maybe thrived through the industrial model of doing things. Why do you think they're turning more and more now to this brand of work, this knowledge work? I think it depends on the company and it depends on what, what industry you're in. Certainly I'm not trying to suggest that the, the factory model or something like that is, is obsolete or something like that. I think where we get into problems though, is where you try to take this factory model and apply it to a fundamentally different mode of production. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we run into problems. Yeah. It's a completely different 
business, if you will, to be in when you're producing knowledge products, excuse me, yes. versus producing, you know, something off, like we said, a car or some sort of physical product. Yeah. And I remember the, the other thing you talked about that was interesting is you talked about how some organizations who want to do this kind of work, who maybe have determined that this knowledge work, this model is the right way forward for them, their environments aren't set up to promote it. And that really struck a chord with me because I remember one of the things you did when you worked at this post-secondary day where you and I met is at a point in the project, you actually got the people working within these uh, teams that you had designed to start to sit together. And I remember it was weird for a lot of people. Oh, you mean I got to go sit over there now? And is, was that kind of like an application of this concept of environmental, if you will, environmental design? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we, that we know for, you know, one of the things that we know just empirically since, I don't know, in the past 50 years or so is that you can make, you can shape people's behavior in pretty, pretty profound ways just by shaping the space around them. And so, yeah, you're right. Like one of the things that we did on, on that particular project is we literally broke down the walls between these people and create a space, created a space where they could communicate around, around a communal table. It sounds so simple because it is so simple. What we found in that particular case is that we wanted to promote collaboration. We wanted to promote communication across all of these different programs and program areas. So what was the reason? What logical reason would we have for putting people in cubicle cells and making it not just physically harder, but harder in almost every single way. So yeah, one of the things we did is, is we designed the space to promote, just, just to promote easier collaboration and easier communication. That wasn't uh, necessarily a, a groundbreaking thing that we did. It was a pretty obvious thing, I think. I don't think a lot of, most people realize the impact their environments have on them. And I've talked about this from a personal perspective, but it's interesting now to hear you talk about it from a team perspective, right? For me, I think if you want to read, maybe start by uh, purchasing books, for example, maybe get a library membership, maybe put the books where you can actually see them so that when you walk by, it reminds you to say, hey, you haven't read your book today or whatever. But the dimension you're bringing is to say at the team level, how are you facilitating the kind of behavior, the kind of interaction that you want? And then that's a very interesting, interesting dynamic, I think. How do you think that has been affected by remote work? Yeah, it's one thing to get people to sit around and it's very profound, like you said. What, what do you think is happening now that we've moved, especially with knowledge work, right? Knowledge work is one of the biggest candidates for working from home. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this problem over the past two years as well. Yeah, so I guess we could ask ourselves, and, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this too. Whenever we, we push social communication into a new medium, something is usually gained, right? Usually there's some sort of efficiency that's, that's associated with it. But at the same time, you lose things as well, right? Yes. Now, the things that we gain from remote work are pretty obvious, right? Increased yeah. flexibility yeah. and convenience and things like this. Mm. I think the things that we lose are much less obvious. And I'm trying to think at a deeper level about what is actually lost when we start pushing work into remote spaces. Because I think this is where, or, or when we start pushing work in, in into online and virtual spaces is what right. I'm trying to say. Because... Right. I think this is where things are inevitably going. We're all going to live in the metaverse or something scary like that in the next five years anyway. So, you know, what happens though, when you get into these virtual spaces, how does social and human communication, how is it fundamentally altered? 
I think a big thing is, of course, that we lose, we lose a degree of context, we lose a degree of social cues and, and things like this that allow us to make sense of how we're interacting with people. So the most obvious thing, or most obvious example here is sarcasm, right? Sarcasm doesn't translate very well. Yeah, uh, I found that out. Through a digital medium. That's why they invented emojis and memes yeah. and things like this. I'm still thinking through what's lost mm. when we go to a completely remote work environment. And the thing that I think I, I hear the most as I'm interacting with people in all these different organizations is they do they just miss that kind of face-to-face human-to-human interaction, that yes. kind of co-located, embodied communication, right? Yes, yes. And I think that is totally understandable, you know. But again, everybody's slightly different. I've met people who are totally fine working remotely. They have a great remote relationship with their colleagues. They don't see a need or a reason to interact with each other in a IRL context, mm. if you will. I think it's... And for those that say IRL is in real life versus yeah. URL. <laughs> yeah. And it's... So it, it, it's been a very divisive phenomenon that's happened to us over the past few years. Some people have coped for really well uh, and some people haven't. So I think that the big challenge that I think we're all having now is how are we going to design workspaces and workplaces so that we can exploit all of the advantages that come with remote work that we all know and love and also retain some aspect of the, the human or face-to-face aspect of working life as well. How can yes. we get the best of both worlds? Yes. Um, Yes. And I don't think that there's a straightforward answer. And I don't know that anybody has really uh, figured that out yet, at least for, for most larger corporations. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And here's what, right. what I think won't, won't go well. Here's what I think won't go So this is what you hear, not just with some of the, the organizations that I work with, but also just in general. We need to get back to normal. You hear this all the time. We need to get back to work. Yeah. And I keep saying this to anybody who listen. You can't go back. The toothpaste is already out of the tube. It doesn't go back in anymore. Time only moves in one direction. You can't go back to the future here. Okay. Mm. The new model, it already had, the change already happened, guys. It already happened. So. Yeah. This idea that we're just going to go back to normal, quote unquote, and that everybody's going to come back into the office and things will be the same, I think is, is, a, is a huge, a huge error, right? Yes. And that's going to yes. lead to all kinds of problems, not just in terms of the way people are interacting in this kind of post-COVID society, but also just in terms of an organization's business agility and their ability to, to compete with other organizations that are much more flexible, that are much more dynamic and, and have more of a liquid operating model, right? One of the people I've... True. Ms. Coach recently was saying how she works for a very traditional organization, right? Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, her job is, as you have mentioned earlier, it was knowledge work. And she, for the longest time, had been trying to negotiate for a work from home flexibility type of thing. And the answer was always, oh, we're not set up for it. We're not set up for it. We're not set up for it. And then COVID happened. And all of a sudden, within 48 hours, they were set up for it. Yep. And it makes you wonder, I can understand why the company maybe didn't want to start something like that. But now that it started, like you're saying, it's going to be really hard to go back and make the excuse, right? That we're not set up for, uh, no, you are, because we've been working like that for two years and productivity hasn't, in her case, productivity actually went up. So I don't think it's just the flexibility. There are some of these online tools that can actually boost productivity. Sure. As far as getting the job done goes, they can help people work asynchronously. So many things are possible with technology, but I also agree. We've evolved, depends on who you ask, at least for a few thousand years, right? We've evolved for a long time to interact 
in a physical, tactile way with each other, right? The cavemen did not Zoom call how to make fire. You know what I mean? They were there striking the stones and figuring it out physically. And so I, I don't know if there's something genetically hardwired into us, I suspect, that makes us favor working in proximity, even when there are so many measurable reasons not to, if you know what I mean, business in the business sense, measurable benefits to not doing that. So it is quite a pickle, I think. And it'll be interesting to see if and how we are able to resolve it. What, what's your thought on hybrid where... You work on-site for a little bit and then work off-site. What, what's your view on that as a compromise? Yeah, I, I think that's the, the most sensible way to go. I think that organizations that are trying to roll out this new way of working to their people, one of the things they're going to have to explain to everybody is if they want them back in the office, like you said, they're going to need to come up with a good reason to have people back in the office, right? Mm. And, and it has to be better than we've already paid for the space. Or you hear, this is running. <laughs> yeah. Or you hear other excuses, like we've seen our productivity decline. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, at least mm. not in any of the, the studies that, that, that I've seen post the start of the pandemic. Mm. Like you said, people find that the biggest change that has happened to the productivity is that they're more productive. So that the productivity excuse for coming back, that doesn't work. Or the fact that if we go 100% remote, it's going to degrade our culture or something like that. Whatever. I don't culture. Like, well, what is culture anyway? Like your culture exists no matter what you do. It's just there. It's not something that you can shape. It's what's left behind after people do the work. So yeah. I, I think the hybrid model is really the only model to, that makes sense in a 21st century world. That, that makes complete sense to me. It, the actual mechanics of putting that in, into motion, I think, are a little bit more complicated, right? So right, right, you have right. who's coming in at what times and what teams are required to be in and which are not, right? And who makes yeah. those types of decisions? Are they going to be reserved for leadership teams or are they going to be delegated down to delivery teams themselves or something like that? All of these kind of details need to be worked out. I think though that the hybrid model is really the only model. And I think that unless you want to go 100% remote, and in which case, again, you've just decided that the whole face-to-face -face thing, it's not as important to your organization and, and it's not as important to your employees and your clients. Or maybe you meet up for a big face-to-face -face meeting once a quarter or something like that. So there's all kinds of ways to, yes. to structure work. I think what, what your client is probably distressed about is that we have all this possibility now and... I think what's going to happen for at least a handful, more than a handful of organizations is that they're going to go back to the old way. They're going to, they're yes. going to, yeah, they're going to go right back to trying to do things the old way. Right. Yes. And it's going to, like I said, it's just going to create a, a bunch of problems. It's just going I mean, to create. I mean, look at job postings now. They put remote up front, like they let you know right away, this is remote. And mm -hmm. I think part of that is a way to attract talent. People True. who have tasted, if you will, of the flexibility and like it or whatever benefits they think. It's not everybody likes remote work, like you said, let's face it. Sure. Some people love it, some people don't like it. Some people have detested it from the minute it started. But I think it's safe to say that for most people, especially people who are in the, if you will, the uptick of productivity in their careers, who are also balancing family and a lot of other things, those things tend to happen around the same time in, in, in most people's lives. It's, they're getting into the groove of their career is right around when they start starting a family and all that. So yep. I think for most of those. And people, the other thing that, sorry, Anthony, can yeah, I no, interrupt ahead, you? Please. 
But the other thing that we should point out is that a lot of organizations talk a big game about uh, inclusion and diversity. So the pandemic, as everybody knows, did not impact everybody in the same way. And remote work, for example, is uh, it, it may be much more appealing to women than it is to men. Women who often do have to juggle other responsibilities, other life work. Yes. And that, that can make a huge difference to them. I think that's another thing that that's an interesting should, should just be pointed out and just put on the table, right? Yes. If, yes. We're, if we're really talking about it, designing an inclusive workspace, well, then we need to, um, you know, we need to just admit that the way things were going before in some organizations, it wasn't exactly conducive to starting or, or growing a family. It wasn't inclusive. It just and, wasn't. and that burden disproportionately, for better or worse, disproportionately falls on women in society. Yes. And it's not, it wasn't really a huge secret to me when we, when the pandemic started and we saw lots of women dropping out of the workforce because their organizations were just not designed to support the obligations that they needed to, that they needed to take care of. Yes. So yes. it's, it, that's a whole other kind of conversation that I think we haven't even started to have yet. Yeah. In a serious the, way. The, it's an important, it's an important point. I agree because when we think of inclusion, a lot of people think race, religion, sure. sexual orientation, but the big divide and you could argue that the biggest divide of the human race, there, there are only so many people who are different, a certain color, only so many people who are a certain religion and all that. But that, if you want to call it to be inclusive, to say gender roles, if you want to split it by gender roles, that is arguably the biggest category. Those are the two biggest categories, right? Those two major gender roles that people fill. And so if you're truly inclusive, you're excluding 50%. <laughs> <laughs> of your workforce potentially if you don't consider that as part of your design. That's an interesting, I'd never actually thought of, I shouldn't say never, but I, I think I felt I was guilty of thinking about inclusion along those three big categories, race, religion, sexual orientation, right? Not sure. really in terms of those two. So thanks for adding that dimension. I think it's very important. The other thing is that, that you know, we should note just while we're on the topic is that even before the pandemic, I, I don't have the, the article at my fingertips, but I recall reading a series of articles, which basically made the point that all of the quote unquote culture work, the collaborative culture, team building kind of work before the pandemic, mm. the, the birth, the, the office birthday uh, parties and things like this, the team building exercises, the, the field trips and this kind of thing, all of that disproportionately fell onto women in the workplace anyway. It was all women who were doing this kind of collaborative work. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that was often seen as work that was necessary. I, if it was necessary, we certainly didn't treat it that way because those mm -hmm. are generally considered to be non-promotable activities. And the majority of the time you find uh, women in workplaces doing that work of building culture. Very interesting. We could really go down the rabbit hole on this one, I think. Yeah. But, and I'm tempted, I'm tempted actually to explore it, but maybe we'll circle back because if we're talking about team productivity and we we end up with a situation where the group, if you will, that tends to be the champions of culture within a team, if that group gets excluded or, yeah, gets excluded, then what happens to the the team culture? It's very interesting. And even on a global scale, there have been, there's, there's been research that has shown this whole thing of if women ruled the world, there would be no wars. I think that's complete nonsense. But 
that whole idea that there's a big, there are communities that have been led by women have seen improvements in rather unique ways just because of that approach to sure. leadership. That, that, that very interesting. Okay. We might circle back to it. And the other thing that you mentioned that I wanted to explore a little bit is what are the biggest, because we are talking about the, the vital for you, 8020. If you were to say 80% of problems in teams come from this 20% of issues, what would that 20% be in, in your experience? Yeah, that's a difficult one. You put me on the spot here, but the thing <laughs> that comes to mind almost immediately is I also wonder what, what separates a team from a group, right? Mm. What separates a team from just a group of people? The big distinction here just comes down to the ability of all these people to not just be, to be going in, in the same direction and aligned toward a single goal, but there's a dynamic within a team where it's not unlike a soccer game or hockey game or something like that, where you have different team members that are passing back and forth between each other. They're handing off things and some people are doing their bit of it and handing it off to somebody else. And it looks, it, it that it, it looks a little chaotic at times, but what really I think it comes down to is coordination, right? Mm. The ability to understand, okay, this is my role in the team and this is what I need to do to support my, my other team members in their roles. And they're doing the same. I don't know if you get that on a lot of teams. I think that a lot of, a lot of that we call teams are really just groups of people doing stuff. And they're just like, well, I did my thing. And then they, they hand it back to the project manager and they're like, all right, well, I guess I'm done. And it's almost, imagine how that would work in a soccer game. I kick the ball down the field. What else do you want from me? It doesn't work. You're not really part of a team. And so I think that you come back to this question of well, what's the, that 20% of the effort or what have you that will give a, a huge result. I think the, the most, the, the simplest and most straightforward thing that uh, you can do is just make your work visible. Interesting. So again, we talked a little bit earlier about an industrial factory. In a factory or in a manufacturing facility, everything, the workflow is visible, right? It's, it's pretty clear and you can see where the workpiece or the work, you can see what happens to the work product as it goes through each of the stages. Yes. You can't really do that in knowledge work very well. And so we need to communicate more and we need to communicate constantly in order to coordinate ourselves around the work product. And I find that a lot of people, and again, this is very, uh, another very basic thing, a lot of people do not make their work visible. They write things down in, in, in a pen and paper and a note in a notebook, an old fashioned notebook. I say old fashioned. It doesn't matter what you book in a way that number yeah. one, only they can understand. Number two, nobody else can access it. So nobody really knows who's doing what and when. And so what this, you know, what this creates is more uncertainty within the group, right? And now we need to communicate more. And that generally means more meetings and, and more risk, more execution mm -hmm. risk because we have to somehow reduce that uncertainty all the time. And there's really no reason that most teams that are engaged in quote unquote knowledge work or service work or things like that, there's really no reason at all why they can't make that work visible to each other. And that would at least, that would at least give them a way to communicate without having to invest so much in you know, having meetings to compare checklists, basically. That would, what I love about these conversations is it's almost, sometimes it's what I expect to hear, but sometimes it's not at all what I expect to hear. And this is one of those cases where that was Okay, what were you expecting? That I thought, but maybe we'll okay. talk about what I was expecting later, but it is interesting. And I think it's one of those subtle but powerful concepts is just other, just coordinate, 
right? Anyway, there's so much to unpack there. But here's the answer to your question really quickly. I could have sworn you'd have said something along the lines of the biggest problem I see is that people don't have clarity, for example, of what they're trying to do. Something like that. That's what I was expecting. But the angle you've come from, I think it's so easy to affect even the most well-oiled machine. And that's what I like about it is no matter how well organized your organization is, this is the kind of thing that could still easily derail your efforts at teamwork is if work is not made visible. And it is so easy to, to ignore or to just miss. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people, do you think it's a question of just personal habit or is it a question of them not knowing any better? Because I've been there too, me, right? One of the conversations we had was how I still use a paper, a, a notepad. And you said, you did that. I remember this. You said, you told me this years ago, you said, it's very searchable. <laughs> that was your thing. It's not very And I thought, he's right. You can't control F on a notebook. I still use a notebook till today, but I've also started to blend it with digital stuff that I can just search for terms and find them. So there is definitely benefits to both. Let's go back to what you were saying. What do you think it is that's causing people to, causing teams to suffer in that way? I think that it could be of several different reasons, right? I think habit is part of it. I, I sound like I'm against the old pen and paper, but I'm not. There's something very satisfying about the texture of dragging the pen across the, and I write in cursive. So like when people see my handwriting, they're like, oh, wow, this guy's old school. I love it too. Don't get me wrong. But when we put things into a system, a system, whether it's like a task board or, or some sort of queue management system, or just a, a basic shared list. You're not just doing it for yourself and making it easier for you to track what you're supposed to do. It's an act of communication to your other, to your team members, because now I don't have to poke you all the time and say, Anthony, what's going on with that thing? I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on that. What's going on with that? Did that get done? Did that get submitted? Was that handed off? Was that approved? These are the types of interactions that I think constantly distract us at work. And what we do when we make our work visible through some sort of a digital system is we make all of that you know, what was once that active communication, we make it passive. And so I no longer need to reach out to you to figure out what's going on. I just look at a, look at a board or I look at a list and I can tell, and that's the team communicating. I like that. You, you take communication that's usually active and you make it passive. And I wonder how many hours in a week that would save people, right? And I wonder how much efficiency that would create. And it's not just efficiency, at least from in my mind, my approach to productivity is not efficiency for its own sake. It's efficiency so that blank, right? Whatever that blank is for you. If it's so that you can do more, fine. If it's so that you can have more fun, fine. I don't care. But it's efficiency so that blank. The question becomes, what's the price that we're paid maybe unknowingly by, by not embracing the, these kinds of systems in our teams is... We may feel like we're doing okay, business is good, but is there something, is there a price that we're paying mm -hmm. without even realizing? Yeah, and I think that price is, is, of course, time, which is kind of opportunity cost. While I'm busy attending that status meeting, that's time I'm not working mm -hmm. on my stuff. And yeah, it's, I just, I'm thinking about your question, because I'm not sure if I answered it, that why do people resist doing this, right? Or why do people, why do people struggle with it? So habit is one, yeah. but I, like, I honestly don't, think a lot of people understand that when I make my work visible, yeah, it's not just for me. It's for you. It's for you, right? That's something that I'm giving to the team. When, when I choose not to, not to 
put my tasks on a shared list or not to open up my calendar. That's a decision that in a way it's, it, you know, could be made for very rational and strategic reasons. Maybe there are private things that you don't want to share for sure, but it's a very kind of individualistic way to think about uh, your work. Well, I know what's going on. Okay. Well, that's great that, you, but I don't know. Yeah. And that's the problem yeah. because you don't know yeah. when I need to know. And yes. I think that again, this is partly the ways organizations are, are, are designed and structured. We, we, how do I say it? We, we, uh, we did, we design them with kind of an individualistic mindset or an individualistic mode of operation. We don't design them so that they, they can support teams as, as much. I think one of the foundational points you made earlier is that point of how organizations are designed. Even your structure, your, the way your organization is structured is going to facilitate one or the other or something. It's going to facilitate something. What is, like, I say all that to ask this. What would be a very practical setup in terms of for a cross-functional team? And I'm, I'm coming back to the point you made super early in the conversation where you said some teams are short-lived they come together, do a task and disband. Other teams, maybe this is their job for the long haul, as long as they work in that department. So maybe we'll look at that nuance later, but let's assume the latter or even the former. What, is, what, what are some of the really practical things that can be done to promote the kind of transparency or visibility or all the stuff that makes for a good team? You, you said a moment ago, uh, you thought I was going to talk about clarity. So this is it. I'm going to talk about clarity. I, I don't know about you, but I think <laughs> most people go about their day to day and everybody just assumes that things are clearer than they actually are. And I think people just nod oh, their heads yeah. and go, yeah, I get it. Of course they do. And they only understand, yeah, just this little <laughs> sliver, like their little piece of the work. They, they don't understand the big picture. And so it's very hard when you don't understand that big picture and, and what you're moving towards and what your ultimate objective is. When you don't understand that, you can't you can't make decisions on the fly about what to do when when your team runs into a, runs into a problem, or when you have different people within the same function or within the same team even that have differing perspectives that they they aren't clear about what it is that they're actually trying to achieve. That's the, you're, that's a recipe for conflict. With the clients that I'm working with, it's it's not a waste of time at all. Take the time, invest in creating clarity and that vision is going to help you. It's going to help you see the pathway forward much more clearly. That means you're going to be able to accelerate much, much faster, right? Invest in creating clarity. I really yeah. like that. You can invest in creating clarity or you, can, or you can just accept the risk and hope it all works out. Sometimes it's not seen as value, quote unquote, value adding work. And it's not seen by value adding work, usually by the people who have a big under, have, have the whole picture in their head. And if you're just coming on and yes. oh my God, I got to explain to this guy, you know, what this project is all about and what this, we don't have time yeah, for this, yeah, man. Yeah, just read yeah. the documentation. And that's where we run into problems because you're going to, you're going to do what everybody does. You're going to do your best to figure it out, but we're not actually going to check ourselves and check our understanding to make sure that, yeah, we are on the same page and we are all moving towards that same objective. The only the only point at which we have that conversation is usually when a conflict comes up and then we find out, oh, exactly. yeah. what I thought was clear is, was not, was not that clear. And you said just now, like checking on the objectives. Do you think it's worthwhile for, for effective teams to have those Absolutely. Organized? Yeah, one of my, the, oh, yeah? The, one of my consulting offerings is OKR coaching and OKR is just a, a very super simple framework. You have a objective or a goal that you're trying to reach. 
And that's, that's the O part. And then the key results part, the KR part is that quantifiable measure that indicates to everybody who's looking at, who's looking at this piece of work, when it is that you're going to reach that objective or what it, you know, basically it's the success criteria. So I might have an objective to grow closer with my customers. That's a goal. How am I going to know that's happened? So a key result might be, you might get X amount of inbound consulting requests or something like that. Inquiries, right? inbound calls that that might be a signal to me that yes i am achieving that goal when we start to break apart goals like that what we want to do is is make them clear right we want to make them as unambiguous uh, as possible and when i look at a lot of corporate goal setting frameworks and and even objectives and goals that you see in most organizations most of them are just a collection of stuff that people do i'm not sure that they're really goals right it's like we're going to do this project this Mm -hmm. year okay what's the impact right what is the actual goal how does that help the business and that takes time to figure out and people often just don't have the time or they've convinced themselves that they don't have the time to do that that's a very important point yeah yeah they don't have the time and then Sometimes oh, yeah. it's hard work sometimes. And so there's the laziness sure. factor as well. Yeah, it's, it's bad enough that I don't have the time. It's, I, I don't want to do all that yep. stuff, man. I just really want to do this project. Can I just do the project instead? Instead of going through the pain of, of actually, it's like what you said earlier. You said it's the difference between a team and a group. And now it's the difference between actual strategic goals and just a collection of yeah. people doing stuff. And that's it. I, even in a... My business is me and a few contractors, even in, in, in this small, relatively small in terms of number, hopefully not in terms of impact, but in terms of number in this space, I can totally see how this, not to mention a multinational thousands of employees kind of organization. It's so much easier to slip into that trap of not having clarity around why we're doing what we're doing and then not having objectives as well. It's so simple. But it's so necessary, yeah. um, you know? I think everybody would much rather prefer to think, just to not think about impact and to not do the work to qualify the impact of what they're doing. They just assume that if I do the project, I'll get the result, I'll get the benefit. When often that's not the case. We've all seen projects that they're delivered perfectly, they're executed impeccably, and they don't change anything to do with the business. So why did you do anything. them, right? Why did you do that? Why did you spend all that time, all that money, all that effort? Yeah, it's a great project. Everybody on it was awesome. Yep. They all did the roles. Good. They performed impeccably and mm-hmm. we didn't change anything. So I guess the question now becomes, even before we start talking about team productivity, there's the fundamental question. And this is the other thing I was hoping we'd talk about is because you, you mentioned leadership teams and delivery teams, right? It becomes a question of at the leadership team level, what are you putting forward to delivery teams because delivery teams will do essentially whatever the leadership puts as a priority. They'll probably give it a shot. But even if you have the most efficient team delivering something and that thing doesn't matter. You built the wrong product, right? Like everybody's worst nightmare. Build the wrong product. And And we've all done it. Oh, (laughs) no, I've never done it. Most most normal humans, mere mortals (laughs) have have always fallen into this trap. How recent do you want us to go? But it is an interesting, it is an interesting consideration as well is was the team, was the goal of the team, um, necessary (laughs) to begin with. And if I, I know that affects motivation as well. Like if I feel like I'm doing something that's pointless. As a team member, if, if you have team members who are knowledge workers, usually are, 
if they're smart enough to see the pointlessness of what you're making them do, then it's really hard, I think, to sure. get motivated. Do you, have you ever seen that happen? Or yeah. That, is, yeah. Like I'm seeing it happen right now with one of the clients that I'm working with. One of the, the top issues I think that we're facing right now is the fact that people just don't understand how their work connects to a larger vision, a larger purpose, a larger mission, a larger business goal. They just don't see it. And part of, of the responsibility of management is to make that clear for them, make it clear how their day-to-day -day work connects with connects with the business strategy, with where we're all going, with the organizational strategy. And again, this is, like you said, this is hard work. It's deep thinking work. But yeah, that's just the worst, right? It's the worst thing that can happen to you is that you're in a uh, you know, one of the, you know, a cubicle, just like everybody else. And you're just toiling away and you feel like you're just not really doing, you're not really, you're not really having any impact at all. That's just awful. It is. It's not even emotionally. And we can poo poo emotion all we want. Human beings are emotional. I think so. Beings. Yeah. We bring that stuff to work. If you feel like it's pointless. Yeah. Why get better at it? Why do it better? If ultimately, or even if you don't think it's pointless, but you don't see the point. You don't see how it connects to the other moving parts. And I've often wondered this, and I'm wondering what you think too. We see burnout is now a major thing, right? I often think, and I don't, this is just my intuition here. Why are people constantly burning themselves out? Is it because they're working long hours? Yeah, maybe, right? That could be part of it. But I also see people who, you know, small business owners, people like you and me, who work 20 hours a day, right? And yeah, it's grueling and it's a grind or, or people who work in mission-driven organizations, nonprofits and things like this. They are putting in countless yeah. hours, usually for a, a modest uh, salary. And you don't see that level of burnout. So what's different? And I wonder if, not to say that this, that we don't all get, we're not all susceptible to burnout, but I often wonder, is a big part of burnout just the fact that you can't see what impact you're having? You don't see the point. I don't know. I don't know. But that is thoughtful. I've often wondered about yeah. it. I can, it's definitely thought provoking because I, I agree. I agree. You've done work and yeah, you've been yeah. energized by the work and you've done other work. Drained, you've just, for sure. Right. So now we're on the same wavelength, finishing each other's sentences. Exactly. There you exactly. We, we, we're like an old married couple. So, so it is interesting. And I think part of that is a function of just sheer difficulty, right? Some tasks are just more difficult, maybe based on our skill level at the time. And so maybe that drains you. And other tasks, although difficult, they're in that sweet spot that you're there. They challenge you just enough, but not too much. And so maybe there's that dynamic going on, but I agree with you. There's definitely a motivation side of things for sure. And if people don't feel like their teams or their contribution to the team or the team's contribution to the greater goal, if they don't see it or they can't relate to it, I can totally see how that would be extremely yeah. de-energizing. Demotivating and, and demoralizing, right? And I remember when I worked at, when I read, was this job I worked at, and we just kept doing our job, right? just doing our job. And I remember one particular summer, the VP of that, of the entire division, not just our department, of the division came. And for the first time, I'd, I'd been working that job for two years. And for the first time, the VP came and told us how what we were doing was contributing. <laughs> and that was the first time in the, in that many years that I, I think I heard it maybe once more while I was, while I worked there, but it was amazing how much of an impact just having someone at that level of leadership come in and say, Hey, you guys, this thing you do, 
is important. Mm-hmm. Here's why. Here's how we use it. And it was a game changer for me mentally. And so that's a very important, very profound point I think you made, Brad, that I think a lot of companies and even individuals and teams don't think about. Is it worth, I wonder, going out of your way for your own sake to find out why your job? (laughs) Maybe you find out it's not important, so maybe don't do it. I don't know, but (laughs) do you think it's worth it? I I think it would be worth it to go out of your way to actually find out what your work actually translates. Yeah, I, th- I think so. If I think just there's, I'm always reluctant to make these types of generalizations, but it seems like mm-hmm. everybody wants to know that, everybody wants to feel valued. Everybody wants to feel like they're having impact. Everybody wants to feel like they are helping to achieve something, right? And this is, again, part of the, the motivating power of teams too, right? When you atomize people and, and you put them in cells and, and call it a work a workplace, the it's so much harder to connect to something beyond yourself. And like you said, that can be when you can't see what that connection is and you can't draw that line between what you're doing and and who you're helping and and what you guys are achieving. It's, it seems to me like burnout is so much easier to get to then because you feel like whatever I do, it's irrelevant anyway. Like it's it's like an absurd existence. Let's shift gears for a second. If there was something you could liken an effective team to, what would it be? be and what are some of the characteristics of that thing knowing that all metaphors are imperfect obviously and what would be your preferred metaphor for a functioning team my preferred metaphor for a functioning team and and i can't use a sports analogy okay oh you can whatever it can be sports it can be the military so one of the stories that i love to tell about teams is all about michael jordan right so Everybody knows who Michael Jordan is. Greatest basketball player of all time. One of the greatest athletes of all time. Okay. She was a hero growing up to everybody who, to all, all kids who are interested in sports. 1990s Bulls, the Dynasty, Scottie Pippen, all these guys. They had something that was un, unmatched in the history of the sport. They, of course, they were skilled. Of course, they were at the top of their games. But what they also had was a kind of understanding, a kind of... Um, synergy between each other where they like i said they i did sorry siri i didn't get that so you could try it again (laughs) so what they had was like a synergy that that came i think that came to them through hours millions of hours of practice and experience with each other so that they could get to the point where they all knew what each other's capabilities were they all knew the rules of the game they were all moving toward that same objective and a big part of it of course had to do with michael jordan's skill okay so jordan Mm. he wins uh, i'm gonna get this wrong he wins at least three championships i can't remember if bulls won the fourth one or not and then he retires of course because it's at the top of this game he retires and everybody says that's it Mm. no more michael jordan basketball is just gonna be whatever after this and of course he gets bored as they all do and he wants to come back and play and i can't remember the exact team off the top of my head right now he comes back and he plays for a season. Oh, we'll look, I'll look at and it up and put it in the show. They, they do so poorly and nobody can understand this. They can't understand how is it that this team is Michael Jordan, MJ's on the team and, and you know, what happened basically. And to me, what that kind of taught me was that it's not really about the individuals are important for sure. When you're talking about a world-class team, it, it's something beyond individuals. It's something that exists between individuals, between mm-hmm. Rodman and Pippen and 
MJ. It's something that they had going on between each other. It was that synergy. You take one person away, it's like taking a key part of that puzzle piece away. The picture doesn't look complete anymore and, and it doesn't, the team doesn't perform in the same way. That was a pretty profound example for me, right? How you could take one of the greatest athletes of all time and put him in a different context on a different team at a different time in a different place. Yeah. And he's not really the same person even. He's not the same player. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Call it what you want, the secret sauce or whatever. But I think what made them so special was their experience with each other and not just their individual characteristics, right? It's a subtle, but deeply impactful thought and very humbling too, because here I, like I've said over and over again, the individual. It's how, for me, it's about how can the individual do their best, produce their best work, build the best career, build their best life. But also remembering that depending on the industry you pick, right, it might matter more in some than in others, but more and more in the world today, who and who you work with is just as important, if not more important. I think it was Richard Koch. I called him Coke for the longest time until I found out his pronounced, it's pronounced Richard Koch. He's the one that said, who you work for is sometimes more important mm -hmm. than what you do. And he was saying it in terms of branding and career and learning and all that jazz. But in this, in these terms, I'm learning from this conversation that it's also that synergy that happens. If you are extremely talented, extremely hardworking, extremely industrious, and you're in a team that for some reason, like I said, secret sauce, it just doesn't work. You may not reach your full potential, time. but you can often make things worse. You know, yeah, it's going to take yeah, five times as long and yeah. things are going to be so much worse in terms of quality, scope, budget, like everything is going to be worse. Very interesting. And so from your perspective, like on, on the team front, what are some of the ingredients you have found to be consistent? Well, let me not say ingredients. Mm. Let's say roles, if you will, because there is the technical role that a person fulfills in its seat. Now, that's the marketing person. That's the software person, whatever. Do you find there are some softer skill type roles that teams tend to do better if those people are there and struggle if those people aren't there? Or is it just a question of picking people strictly based on the, maybe say their technical functions? Uh, sooner or later, we're going to have to talk about leadership and because it's such a pervasive topic in, in, uh, in, in, in popular management and things like this. One of the things that I've really tried to emphasize with all the teams that I have is that leadership is not, leadership is absolutely necessary for sure, but it's not inherent within an individual, or at least it doesn't have to be, right? Okay. So interesting. when we're, you know, when we're talking about leadership within a team, you may have a formal title of whoever is the leader, right? The project leader, the project manager, scrum manager, whatever you want to, whatever you want to a product owner, whatever you want to designate that role is, as the formal leader, but, but the actual practice of leadership is much more fluid. It's, it's passed around from different team members. It's distributed. And I think that good leaders, and that's really all of us, and this is going to sound like a bit of a cliche, but we have to know when to stop leading and let other people lead. We have to know when to let go and then just trust that, that your other team members get the job done. And if they make a mistake, they make a mistake. Most of us are not saving lives. So we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. If they made a mistake. We're going to learn something from it. Mm. 
Let's just move on. I think that decentralizing leadership and distributing it, passing it around, a volleyball system where one person serves until he messes up and then he rotate and let the other guy take it for a while. That's the way, that's the, I think an essential quality that most great teams have is that they, they're able to share that leadership responsibility and they're able to identify when they need to shift leadership to different people, depending on the context and what they're facing, right? I'm counting down all your references. So we've had <laughs> had a soccer reference, we've had a basketball reference, now you have a volleyball reference. Let's see how many more references we'll get before the end of the, before the end of the interview. But yes, that is again a surprising answer, but I think a a, a useful answer as well because yeah, leadership. And you can see, one can understand why leadership is a big deal now. Because there's so many people who are horrible at it, right? Who have seen crisis. Exactly. And that's exactly right. They get, they become leaders, but sure. it's more positional. And so they don't understand, or maybe not that they're bad people, but maybe they've just never yeah. thought about it in the way that it actually seems, appears to work. <laughs> so let's put it that way. So decentralized leadership contextual leadership is some of the stuff I heard you talk about. And this might even be the best place to actually segue into the discussion on leadership teams or teams of, if you will, teams of leaders. For someone who is in sitting around that table, right, having the conversation with other people of influence in an organization, that's their role. They're not the people necessarily doing the work. They can get in there, but that's not necessarily their role. What are some of the biggest, again, to use the 80-20 term, what is the you know, 20% that makes, that causes 80% of the problems around that table? I think that or like one of the biggest mistakes is that they don't actually, they don't actually ask the team what the team needs from them. Leaders as directive, right? They're, they're telling their teams what to do when it really should be the teams that are directing the leaders. And this is something that we get from agile uh, philosophies, this kind of servant leadership model. But most leaders are just not that connected. They're not as close to the work as the people actually doing the work, obviously. So they can't really help out yeah. in that way. So they should just stay out of it, basically. The, the more they're involving themselves, typically the slower things will go, the more complicated things will go. But people are people. They have their own kind of tendencies. Some people like to be in control and, and can't just can't let go that easily. But what they really need to do, I think, is just to to put that trust in their team and then just to ask their team, okay, I can't really help you deliver this work, but I can, the nuts and bolts of it, so to speak, but I can help clear a path for you. So what do you need me to do? What do you need me mm. to do? Who do you need me to talk to? What conversations do you need me to have? What conflicts do you need me to address? And those really effective leaders are, are the ones that are clearing that path for their teams. And they are the ones that are dealing with the problems that the team that the team just can't solve by themselves, either the, because they don't know how to, or because of their position within the organization, or, or because of politics or whatever. I always heard this. You know, you're, I'm sure you've heard this cliche. If you're going to bring leaders, if you're going to bring a problem to your manager, at least have a solution or something like that. I, I think that's completely wrong. Bring problems. That's what they're paid for to solve problems. That's <laughs> that's their job. Bring the problems to them yeah. and let them help you sort it out. So I, I really think that from a leadership perspective. Uh, standpoint. The sooner leaders internalize that part of their job, I think the the better things will be for their teams. Is that they might not be able to code, they might not be able to to write copy or whatever, but they are able to solve political problems within the organization that often can stall the work, and that is their job. Very cool. 
Very glad I like that. Let me just do a quick recap here because some of we've covered a lot of ground actually. We've talked about the role of making your work visible. We've talked about the role of clarity for the team to know exactly what they're doing. We've talked about how a person can be extremely talented and capable, but then in the wrong team, they suffer. We've talked about a lot of different things, the role of leadership. One thing I wanted to also talk about today for the people listening is conflict in teams, right? What are one biggest sources of conflict that you've encountered in a team? And as a follow-up to that, if a person were to be in that situation, what would you recommend that the person do in those in, in that situation for, of conflict? Ooh, that's, that's a tough one. I can tell you an example uh, that's come up for me recently. Recently, I was involved in, in coaching a team where this team was charged with introducing Agile into the organization. Not introducing it, but basically completing an Agile project within the organization. Now, the organization itself is not, again, not set up to, I think, promote this way of working. So the cards are already stacked against them. And one of the one of the big sources of conflict that I see is people who just have different ways of working. And again, this I think part of this comes back to kind of personal productivity. One of the one of the downsides of personal this emphasis on personal productivity is that there's nothing that's shared. And if there's nothing that's shared, then you don't really have much of a, a foundation to build a team on. So if I'm, if I'm really on top of my own productivity, my own personal productivity, and I do it my way and you do it your way, it's, it, that immediately is going to be a source of conflict because I think that ways of doing are connected to ways of behaving and ways of being. And so you're going to behave in different ways and I'm going to behave in, 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 in different ways. And, and that really is a huge source of conflict. And so what we need to do is we need to have a, we need to have a conversation. Right? We need to talk about it. We need to come to some sort yeah. of consensus about how, what each of us is actually willing to compromise on and, and maybe create a new system between us that we can both share, right? Some sort of platform that we can both, that we can both work from. Because again, if we don't have that, and if we're in constant conflict all the time, and again, this type of a conflict is not, this is a really fundamental conflict this is not like a domestic dispute where we're arguing over where the button goes on the page or something like that this is right. i don't think you're doing things the way they should be done that's a different level of conflict yes so yes. unless we can sort that out we don't really have much of a team and again this comes back to how did you and i end up working together to begin with right where we just a group of people yes. put together and said there you go that's a team we got a team here. Yeah. Based on what though? And again, yes. that maybe that was a selection problem that happened before you and I started to have this conflict, right? Or before before this conflict started. But I think that way different ways of working are a huge source of conflict within the organization. And if you're in that position, you have to find a way to to, to address that and to come to some sort of consensus about how we're going to work together. What are we going to share? in terms of right. how we're going to do this. Because it's like, if we can't, then we're basically at odds. We're talking two different languages. We And so the other one you raised was personality. Yeah. So this is more mechanical. It's a how I work kind of deal. How do you encounter sure. personality issues that have very little to do with the job? And then what what do you do as the coach in that case? What do you tell them? Yeah. How do you handle those? It depends. Like So... If you believe that if when I'm working with teams or different clients, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to change something. I'm trying to change something about the team's performance. I'm trying to change 
something about, I'm trying to change something about the business, usually trying to improve it, I hope. So we're trying to change something. I can't really change your personality. I can't, right? I do, I call myself a change management consultant, uh, behavior change consultant. I can't really change people's personality. I can't. What I can change are, and we talked about this earlier, I can change the physical workspace. I can change the processes they use. I can change the rules right. that they use to interact with each other. I cannot change your personality. When it comes to dealing with personality conflicts, what I, my advice, I guess, would be is, to, is, is just to focus on what you can actually change. You can't change someone's personality. And, and, and again, I wonder if a lot of these kind of negative personality traits or these traits that are perceived as negative, how much of it has to do with stuff that is maybe in your control that you don't really realize. Like maybe someone is behaving in a certain, maybe they're behaving like a jerk because they feel like they feel like they're constantly caught off guard with last minute requests. Why are they caught off guard with last minute requests? Because nobody can see what ha what's happening in the workflow. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I'm reluctant to go straight to saying that, oh, that's right. a personality problem. I gotcha. I gotcha. I, yes. Yes. It could be some, it could be a process problem. Correct. Yes. Thing. It could be many different problems, right? Like you're saying, that's now manifesting. And they be me. Yeah, yeah, and that's true too. But the, the point is, I, I want to exhaust all the other mm. possibilities before I come to the conclusion that person is an mm. asshole. And if I do get to that conclusion, first of all, you want to vet it with a few different mm. people. Make sure it's not just me. And if you do get to that conclusion, mm -hmm. then they have to go. I, I don't know. There are just some it's, people. It's, it, yeah, there are just some friend. people that are just yeah. those people. We, we all know them. We've all yes. worked for some of them, right? Yes. But there are assholes in organizations and they cause a lot yes. of damage. So just remove them. Yes. Whatever yes. way you can, just get them out. If that's yes. the ultimate conclusion, yes. yeah. um, then you should just take comfort in the fact that you cannot change their personality. I, I try to approach a problem, a conflict like that, with that being the last option. I try to exhaust all the other possibilities, right. yes. explanations first, yes. right? Yeah. So that would be my answer. And as far as from a, from an individual standpoint, I, I, I know of people who people are the best to change mm. when they're ready sure. for it. Some people, after one or two negative experiences, they start to look inward. And then they, I know of people who have built really successful careers after having a rough time starting out because they had those personality issues that mm. they weren't ready to deal with. But then after, say, the third or maybe even the fourth bad experience at a job, they stop and say, could it be me? Is it me? And then yeah. they start looking inward and they make changes. So I agree with you. I don't think anybody can change, definitely not in a business tent, but that's not even your job. You're not there to, to do therapy necessarily. Okay, before we go, there are two more things I want to talk about before we go. The last one is obviously talking about you and your 20% that makes 80% of the results. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you, is there something I should have asked you that I didn't, that is important for people to know about teams, about being effective, about building and being a part of effective team? I, let me think about this for a moment. I think that, and this is just my opinion, that it's not really about, it's not really about team building and trust falls and things like this. We need to help, help our clients and, and help each other see teams like we see organizations, which are dynamic systems of interacting people 
and mm-hmm. our job as leaders, because we're all leaders, doesn't matter what your, your title is on the, on, on the org chart, you are a leader because we already established that leadership is a practice. It's not a role. Management is the role. There's a big difference. But if you are a leader, your job is to understand that system, the system of your team, the system of your function, the system of your organization, and the interactions and the patterns that happen within it. And building building teams and evolving them to a, a really high level of performance, I think it definitely helps to have that kind of systems perspective, that it's not about individuals, mm-hmm. it's not really about personalities, it's about, it's about these interactions that you're seeing between them that take the shape of, you know, the specific workflows that they use, the specific tool sets that they use, the practices that they invest in, where they direct their focus, are they investing in clarity or are they investing in other places, what's working for them. Just this constant examination of, of mm-hmm. how these, of how, the, of how this team of people is interacting. I think that's the one thing that I wish we could talk more about, I guess, if, if we had time, is to mm-hmm. how we can start to see teams. Mm-hmm. As systems. I'm glad you said that because it sounds like you've just, you've just opened up and asked me to invite you back on the show. It's just hard to be queer sometimes, you know, we're, you know, we're talking about complicated things and uh, yes, yes. that's, that's hard even for me. And I have a PhD in communication, so that doesn't mean that much these days. It, It should. The thing about that, that I find is I think people who come from academia or who have had exposure to academia, me less than you but also to a certain extent, me too, is really yeah, careful, yeah. I think. And maybe too, you get the guy who comes and says, that's yeah. black or it's white. And people like that binary. That's so true. But if you have any yeah. kind of nuance to your communication, you lose out because people want that binary. It's this or it's this, right? Just tell me what it is or what it isn't. But because people who are more academic in their approach or in their exposure in the past, you're trained to look at the nuance, to look at the gray areas. And so when you talk, it almost sounds like you're not explaining. Well, it's because you're being awfully careful. You know, I, I feel so validated that you, you just said that because that's how I feel. That's how I felt for a long time. It's true. Like I, I do try to be very careful I, and I do try to be very nuanced. And you're right. Like people have a hard time yeah. with nuance, right? Generally. It's true. What you should yeah. do is you, you should just say what it is, even if you don't. Well, you know, or, or offer a, a prescription for high-performing teams. Here's a here's a here's a general prescription. It'll work in what all situations. Yes, yes. Take it. There you go. There you go. Right. Of what you have you considered writing a book though? Because I feel like a lot of your perspectives are not what people expect to hear, and they're so valuable. I think, and I think it would make a great topic for a long form where you get a chance to actually explain what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it's a good, it's a good challenge because I think writing is thinking. I don't know if you got this, but when you have to put your ideas down on a page, oh man, that's, that makes it really clear. Yeah. You have to be clear. Yes, definitely. Yeah, exactly. The first time it comes out, it's, <laughs> it's nothing, it's garbage. And you're like, wow, that's a reflection of how I'm thinking. It's just pure garbage. And then you take a few yeah. more runs at it and it gets clearer and clearer. And so that, that. Yeah. The process of writing is the process of thinking. They're so connected, right? So that brings us now <laughs> to what is your 20%? I ask every guest this. You, you've, like, there's a lot that you have. I know some of a part of your story and how you've arrived where you're at. A lot of it is your personal 
interest and commitment to being productive and to continuing to develop yourself. So through that journey, what has, what have you identified to be your 20%? There's no wrong answer. It could be anything, but what's the 20% for you that has made 80%? So, you know, this again, I'm the, the king of simple answers today. Just, I would say <laughs> if there's one thing that's made the most difference for me, it's just carving out time to continuously learn new things. I started, I've been through all the productivity systems. Like you name it, I can, we can talk about all of them. If you want, I can, I'm fluent in all of them and nothing is really stuck. But one of the things that I've just constantly come back to is just learning about, just being curious about the world, being curious about, about things in the world, things that I'm experiencing, being curious about people, being curious about their stories, where they come from, investing that time to learn these things. It's not only, it gives you that kind of immediate payoff that, well, okay, I can use that, right? Not, you know, in a manipulative sense, but maybe to connect with someone better or, or maybe to get my work done better or whatever. But the other thing is that for me, learning is, it's, it's like a bodily function. I have to do it. It's a source of renewal. And that in itself keeps mm. me motivated. If, if I'm constantly studying and learning something new, whether it's about parenting or volleyball, Volley it could be anything. Just <laughs> yeah. constantly keep learning and, and keep investing time in yourself. We talked to... Uh, before a little bit about self-reflection as well. That's another form of learning, right? Take the time to, to block yes. off that time with yourself and just have a conversation with yourself about how you're doing. That has, has helped me Im uh, immensely over the years. Get better. So after going through all these productivity systems, it comes back to this for you. That's the one that's held constant is. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, when you cycle through everything, all the different systems, you pick things that that work and you discard other things that don't work. The Bruce Lee rule. Isn't that what Bruce Lee said? You know, take yes. what's useful and leave the rest. And leave to get something rest. from David Allen and getting things done. Oh, I used to do that. I don't do that anymore. That doesn't mean that all the ideas are, are, are worthless. I certainly picked out tons of them that I carry forward or, or agile results mm -hmm. or bullet journaling or whatever. All of these things you can pick bits and pieces from and you mash it together to form your own style. And that's kind of like the, I, I, that, that's made a huge difference for me just in terms of my productivity. And I know you asked it about, I think you asked about productivity. I would think one of the things that I'm challenging myself to do is to think less about productivity and more about impact. You're definitely coming back on the show. There's no way. There's no way you're not coming well, back you on know. the show. <laughs> you can't just drop a bomb like that. <laughs> Two bombs in a room. <laughs> like, okay, bye Anthony. You're coming back for sure. I'm going to, I'm going to drag you back on the show if I have to. Well, hopefully I'll be, I'll be a little bit more prepared in terms of my, these ideas, but we talked a, a lot today about so many different things. Like one of the things we talked about was burnout, right? And I think we speculated about whether yes. burnout was associated with just a perception that what you're doing doesn't matter. You have no impact, right? And I know some very productive people who get stuff done and they're burning out. And I think that's mm -hmm. part of it has to do with the fact that they're not, they feel like they, they're not having any impact. I've learned, to, I'm trying to learn to take a break from all the, the productivity porn and whatnot and to start thinking about, okay, so what are the big areas in my life that I need to have impact in? We're both fathers. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's probably either number one or number two. It's either fa being a father or being a husband. It's probably number one or number two, depending on, right? Top three. Yeah, yep. <laughs> but even don't even rank them. Don't even rank them. Just say these are the most mm -hmm. important things in your life. It's, it's your family. It's your, it's your children. It's, it's your friends, the people that you help, the people you're making a difference for customers and uh, learn to savor that impact and, and stop worrying about how productive 
you're, you're trying to be. Oh, I didn't achieve my task quota today or something like that. All right. doesn't matter. Did you impact somebody else's life? Did you make a positive difference? That's worth so much more. I agree. And that, that would be the perfect note on yeah. which to end <laughs> this conversation. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Brad, for sharing your thoughts, for informing, for providing insights, for inspiring us all, inspiring me and inspiring all those that are listening to, to the podcast right now. If people want to learn more about you, where should you go to my website? It's www.bradleyking.ca, B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-K-I-N-G.ca. You can find me on LinkedIn too. Not see it. I don't think I'm hard to get a note of. I'm hold of. I think we could put it in the show notes too, can't we? Make it even super easy. Yes, right? I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, like why would you just click the link? The link in the show notes and just go, <laughs> just go see. You don't do. I don't think. I don't know. I don't know that you do any other social. Right? You're not. A you know, I I heard that the kids you like the TikTok. TikTok. But if you do want to learn about Brad, I'll put. All the links, all the officially licensed links by himself in the show notes. Nothing on the dark web in there at all, for sure. Thank, Thank you. you so much again awesome. for your time. And uh, hope, hope oh no, thanks for your time, man. It was so much fun. Looking forward to our next chat. All right. Take Absolutely. care, buddy. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to eighty twenty productivity. If you enjoy the show, then subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And if you'd like to learn about how Anthony can help you or your organization drive gains through smart, focused productivity, then head over to anthonysani.com. Until the next episode, stay true to your vital few.